Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be with you. Hey, my volunteers told me a little earlier as they were walking off stage, they're willing to let me hit the ball in the next service, okay? So we're going to take care of the, uh, the plastic back there, and we're going to just nail a ball right off of, right off somebody's face. How's that sound? Does that sound like a good idea? How many of you think that's a bad idea, Pastor? All right, maybe I shouldn't do that, you know, but it would be fun. <laughs> hey, uh, take your Bibles today, John chapter 8 today, John chapter 8. Um, you know, today's, today's a great day. I got to show you a few things uh, before I begin to preach. Uh, first of all, um, my son Patrick um, was uh, preaching this morning at um, Indiana Westside Church, and uh, he was preaching God's Word, and and so this is this was live from this morning. I, I took a snapshot on my phone. And I just love this statement that he said in his sermon. He says, it's not a story of what has happened, but a story of what always happens. Talking about the word of God. It's not just a story about what has happened, but it's a story of what always happens and what you find in God's word actually lives out in your own life. It actually, it act, the same principles, the same teachings, the same things that God has done in the past, he continues to do today and he will continue to do tomorrow. And um, so if you'd like to hear a really good sermon, go to West Side Church of Nazarene and uh, you can listen to Patrick's sermon. I was really proud of him this morning. He's uh, actually going to be ordained as a pastor next week. So next, a week from Monday, he'll be ordained as a, as a pastor, as an elder in the Church of Nazarene. And um, Jane and I and Weston will be there. And uh, celebrate that, that event with them. Now, there's also somebody else I want you to remind you that I'm going to meet this coming Wednesday. And that is Savannah. Isn't she adorable? This is her one-month picture. And uh, she's just, I cannot wait to see her. I, I tell you, I, I have a hard time even preaching today. I'm like, let's just get to Wednesday because I'm ready to go. Okay, I can't wait to uh, meet my granddaughter for the very first time and uh, to celebrate with her. So um, I'm not going to leave that picture on the screen because it will distract you the whole time. So let's take our Bibles. Let's go to, to go to the Gospel of John chapter 8 today. The Gospel of John chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Would you mind standing with me as we read God's word together? John chapter 8, starting at verse number 1. But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do, you, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said... 
If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. Speak to us about this grace that saves us, redeems us, transforms us. Oh, God, we need to hear from you today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thanks, uh, Mr. Trusty Man over there. This thing just keeps popping on and off on us over here. And um, we'll see if it will stay on. <laughs> hey, our, our major verse for this series, uh, you already know it by now. John chapter uh, 14, verse 6, not 5 and 6, but verse 6 says this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we've been talking about this way, this, this way, this journey of grace, this way of living, this way of walking with the Lord. You know, God wants us to walk with him, that the Christian life is not a, it's not a set, a set of propositions you believe, it's not a set of rules that you follow, it's not, a, it's not a destination, it's really a journey of walking with God day by day, week by week, year by year, you walk with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. It's one of the seven I am statements in the New Testament. He said, I am the way. And then he said the truth. And today we're going to be looking at what he meant by this idea of truth. Because God is the truth. He is the truth. He is the truth that he gives to us. And he wants to give us some truth about the way we should live our lives. If you want to know more about following God, God will always lead you to the truth. He will never lead you to the false. He will never lead you to lies. He will lead you in the truth because he is truth and he is the life. And then, you know, this, this statement about I am the way, the truth, and life. Last week we learned from God's prevenient grace that God's grace is available to all of us. It's available to all of us, and he wants all to come to know him personally. He wants all of us to walk with him and talk with him and have a relationship with him. He wants all of us to engage him in a personal way. But as much as this statement is inclusive, the end of this statement is rather exclusive. Because he says, no one can come to the Father but by me. No one, he says, can come to the Father but by me. As you probably have heard in other places in the scripture, Jesus said, wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way. Narrow is this road, and the road is following Jesus Christ. And, and one writer put it this way when he wrote this. He said, he said, Jesus is the true and life-giving way to God. Following him 
disciples, that's what you and I are. We're in a journey of grace, disciples, learn the truth about God and experience eternal life only God gives. Now catch this, he is the totality of what God has done, is doing, and will do. He, Jesus, the Son of the living God who came and became human flesh, who walked this earth for 33 years, who died on a cross, who was buried, who rose again from the dead. He is the totality of what God has done, is doing, and will do. This is why Jesus concludes his I am statement with such an exclusive summary when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There are not multiple ways to God. There is one way. And Jesus declared this, there is one way to the Father, one way to know him, one way to follow, one way to experience life, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, could I just tell you, that's a scandalous statement. That's a statement that the world rejects because the world today says there's many roads to God. There's many ways to God. And your way is, it may not be my way. And your spirituality may not be my spirituality. And your thing may, and although there is diversity in our journeys and we're all in different places, there is only one road. And that is Jesus. He is the son of the living God. And he has provided a way for humanity, all of humanity, it's not exclusive in the sense that only some can come. He wants all to be saved, yet there is only one way to get there. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That, my friends, is truth. It is the truth. And as much as people want to reject that truth, it is the only truth. You cannot come to the Father in your own strength. You can't come into it in your own wisdom, in your own goodness, in your own righteousness. You can't come through Muhammad or Buddha or some other God that you want to declare. There is only one God and one way, and his name is Jesus. And that is the only way to the Father. And so today, we're looking at this idea of saving grace. We've talked about prevenient grace, this amazing grace that personifies itself in so many different ways. Remember, the grace of God is the person of Jesus. That's what grace is. Grace is not some it or some force. It is actually the very presence of God himself who is made known to us in Jesus Christ. And so earlier in the Gospel of John, it says, For the law was given through the prophet Moses, through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Come to, Jesus, to us through Jesus Christ. Now, today, our text is in John chapter 8. And I want to tell you, it's a rather controversial text. Because if you read your Bible, you'll notice that there is a footnote in this scripture. And the footnote, at least in the New International Version, says that the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this story in it. 
In other words, the Bible in its original form was oral, and the gospel writers wrote down the oral stories in their gospel writings. And in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, they cannot locate this portion of Scripture. It is only found later on in, in older manuscripts. And so there are some who have determined that this is not what John put in his original Gospel. That would probably be a, a good, you know, conclusion. There's others who would say, well... It's not, we, we can't say for certain that John wrote this in there, but we can say for certain that this is what Je happened with Jesus. There is actually one occasion where one manuscript actually has this story in the Gospel of Luke. It's only in one manuscript in, the gospel, in all of the copies of the, of the early manuscripts of the Scripture, but it locates itself in Luke's Gospel and not in John's Gospel. There are other times where this scripture is located in later transcripts where this story is located prior to John chapter 7 instead of at the end of John chapter 7 at the beginning of chapter 8. So I just want to be right up front with you today, okay? That this is, a, this is one of those parts of scripture that you go, well, but I'm so glad that the, it's not a secret. It tells you in your Bible in footnotes. So that you understand that, all right? But this is what, i got to be honest with you, I love this passage of Scripture. I love this story because it teaches us so much about the grace of God. About his incredible love. About his, about his work of saving us and redeeming us in powerful ways. And it teaches us to take his grace seriously. Because I think too often for those of you who presume upon God's grace, who take grace for granted, who begin to, um, to minimize his grace in so many ways... Um, this story helps us to see that we should take grace seriously. And it really, really makes that clear to us. So let's look at four things that this, this scripture teaches us. How to take God's grace seriously. Number one, take your sin seriously because you stand alone. If you want to take God's grace seriously, you better take your sin seriously. Because ultimately, every single one of us will stand before almighty, holy God. And we'll have to give an account for our lives. And without the grace of God, you're doomed. Okay? The grace of God is there for you, but you must take your sin seriously. In this story, we find that Jesus at the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, he appeared again in the temple court. So he is in a very prominent place in Jerusalem, He's in the temple court, so you got the massive temple there, and outside there's the temple courts. And the scripture says that he is there early in the morning where all the people are gathered around him, and he sat down and he begins to teach them. So imagine he's sitting in the courts, he's sitting there, and there's massive numbers of people that have come out, and he's just sitting there like he has authority. He has he has wisdom and knowledge that they are just longing to hear. 
And he's sitting there. He's having a, a teaching time with them. It's, it's pretty cool. It's, 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 it's early, but it's, it's, uh, the sun is just coming up. It's kind of cool outside, and the people are there. And then the scripture says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these were the religious guys of the day, those who had, who had uh, um, um, religious training, they bring a woman who was caught in adultery. And they make her stand before the group. Now, can we all acknowledge this is mean? I mean, how would you like it if you were caught? Not just a rumor, but you were caught in the act. That's what this scripture says. That this woman is caught committing adultery. And they drag her from wherever they catch her. To bring her to be in front of Jesus. Who is supposedly an authority figure. And the scripture says... They say to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, could you just acknowledge here that if, in order to be caught in the act of adultery, there's got to be two. Can we all agree with that? Like, where's the guy? You dragged her out here, but where is, where is he? Because they're not really interested in justice. As we learn later on in the story, they're interested in trapping Jesus. They have no mercy and no grace upon this woman. They are humiliating her. They are, they are treating her as if she has no meaning and no value whatsoever. She has been caught in the act of adultery. And the scripture goes on to say, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they say to Jesus, we caught her. The law of Moses, which is found in the Old Testament, and you can actually, I could actually give you the scripture text that says that if you were caught in adultery, both adulterers would be stoned to death. You know, mess around in the Old Testament. He said, so they quote Moses to him. Now what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have the basis of accusing him. They wanted to accuse him so that they could kill him. And if you read the New Testament, you'll discover they were constantly trying to trap Jesus. They tried to trap Jesus over the Sabbath. They tried to trap Jesus over healing on the Sabbath. They were constantly trying to get him to blaspheme, to do something to violate the law so that they could punish him and wipe Jesus away. And ultimately, they lied when, they, when they, they, they brought him before the kangaroo courts right before the crucifixion, where he's tried six different times in a 24-hour period over basis of lie after lie after lie. But they're trying to trap Jesus. Now, remember what the Scripture says, for the law of Moses was given through Moses, grace and truth was through Jesus Christ. The law of Moses, which says, 
stoner. But grace and truth is through Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a balance between grace, which is this unmerited, unearned love of God that is poured out upon us when we don't deserve it, and there is truth. And you'll notice in this scripture here, Jesus never says the woman is not, has not committed adultery. He never says that she has not sinned. He doesn't say, he doesn't just dismiss her acts. But as we learn later, he offers grace and mercy instead of stoning, which the law said should happen. Now, did she sin? Do you sin? Anybody want to stand up and confess their sins before the whole church this morning? Anybody want to be stoned? Anybody ever commit adultery in the room? Anybody been sexually mis promiscuous? Can I just say this? This isn't in a sermon, but let's not be a stone-throwing church. Let me say that one more time. Let's not be a stone-throwing church. You know what stone-throwing churches are? Churches that find fault and find places where they can say, gotcha. And want to do nothing but humiliate, destroy, and bring self-righteousness to some in the group over others who are sinners so terribly. Let's not be a stone-throwing church. Jesus says that. But on the other hand, let us acknowledge that this woman was standing before Jesus in front of the entire crowd for her sin, which she shouldn't have been there, but the fact of the matter was is she's standing there all by herself. And you and I, when we stand before Almighty God, will stand before him all by our selves. And I don't know about you. I want to have God's grace and not his judgment. Amen? What is sin? What is sin? In your books this week, you're going to read chapter 3, and Dr. David Busick, which does a wonderful job, describes what is sin for us. And I just wanted to give you the four points that he gives to us. He says, first of all, sin is rebellion. What is sin? Sin is a rebellion against the known will of God. John Wesley said it this way, a sin is a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. Sin is not just a breaking of a law, but it's a breaking of the law with intentionality. You choose to go against not only God's laws, but you also choose to go against your own conscience. 
You're against the law of God. And when you violate God's laws and you do it intentionally, you become a sinner in rebellion. Sin, in its essence, is rebellion against God. Sin is also enslavement. It's to be enslaved. It's the, it's the idea of an act of commission or omission. As he writes in the book, and I, I even got a copy of it here so I could read it to you. He says, he says so biblically, you, this sin is an act of commission. It means I knew I shouldn't do it, but I did it anyways. I knew I shouldn't have lied, but I did it anyways. I knew I shouldn't have stolen, but I did it anyways. I knew I shouldn't have cheated on my taxes, but I did it anyways. I knew I should have paid my tithes, but I didn't, I didn't do it anyways. I knew I should have done whatever it is that you want to fill in there. But when you choose to say, I know I should, but I don't, it's the act of commission. Or on the other hand, it could, be, it could mean an act of omission. I knew what I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it. I knew I was supposed to help the homeless guy. I knew I was supposed to help my neighbor. I knew I was supposed to um, help out my wife or my son or my daughter. Or I knew I was supposed to call my mother. I knew I was supposed to do something good. And the good that I was supposed to do, I chose not to do because I was selfish. Because I didn't care enough, didn't love enough. That's the sin. In other words, the scripture says you're enslaved. And, and really it comes down to this idea that sin is our nature. In other words, you will continuously sin because that's our nature. Our nature is to be self-sufficient, self-sovereignty, to do our own thing, our own way. And this woman in our story was a symbol of that. Not only are we rebels by nature, but we are also not free to do otherwise. Not only do we miss the mark, but we also couldn't hit the mark if we tried. As fallen people, we are not free to do as we wish. We are captives to sin. That is the state of human beings. That we are sinners that we choose to sin, that we are enslaved in sin, that sin is our nature. But there's one more I think it's under, that we need to do. Sin is also estrangement. Do you remember in the garden? Perfect garden. God made Adam and Eve and placed them there. Everything was great. They sinned by doing something God told them not to do. And exactly what happened to them? They began to hide. They begin to hide from each other, and they begin to hide from God. And God came and said, hey, where are you? It's like God didn't know where they were. God knew exactly where they were. But he wanted them to make aware of their own estrangement. They hid from the Lord, and they hid from each other. And here's what sin does to human beings. It causes a breakdown in the relationship this way, and in the relationships this way. You see, sin is relational and begins to enslave us and estrange us from every situation. Every time I do marriage counseling, you know what it comes down to? Selfishness. Somewhere, somebody's been selfish. Somebody's been selfish. Somebody has chosen to put themselves over their spouse. Somebody has chosen to do something that is leading them to have estrangement, have separation between the two of them. 
Can you imagine how that woman felt because she was either having sex with a man who was married or that man was having sex with her who was married to another man? One way or the other, that's what adultery is. Adultery is not only a violation of this way, adultery is a violation of this way. It's a sin that destroys human beings. And that's why sexuality is not some private matter that you do for yourself and it's only about pleasing yourself and it's only about about doing what you think you want to do to please yourself. Sex is always a community matter because sex matters. You can't do it by yourself. God says it's holy and it's meant to be in the bonds of marriage. Traditional marriage. Holy. Sacred. Pure. One of holy commitment. Holy exclusiveness. One that's meant to bring beauty and wonder and connection between two people. But when sex is done outside of the way that God designed it, it brings shame and guilt, hurt and pain, and hiding and secrecy. Sin destroys us. You want to take grace seriously? You must take your own sin seriously. You must understand that you have violated God's laws and that you have have placed yourself above God. You have been enslaved by sin and ultimately you have done nothing but run from God and hurt other people by choosing to live a life pleasing yourself instead of the Lord. That is what sin is. Well, the story goes on. How do you take God's grace seriously? Don't compare yourself with others. Notice what happens in the story. Jesus bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. I love this section. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, it'll stop you in your tracks, won't it? What was he writing in the sand, by the way? There's been a lot of speculation. Some believe he was writing the Ten Commandments. One, two, three. They were experts in the law. They were experts in Moses' law. So maybe he was writing out the Ten Commandments, and he was writing them out one by one. And as he's writing, they're writing them out, they begin to question him about this woman, but the law says she should be stoned. And he straightens up, and he says to them, if any one of you are without violating one of these laws, let you be the first to throw this first stone. And notice what happens. It says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Well, let's see. Harold, you violated that one. Jim, you violated that one. I'll put your name next to that one. And, and he begins to 
he begins to write on the ground. And the scripture says, while he's writing around, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. And notice what it says, from the oldest ones first. Somewhere what he was writing on the ground was connected to their sins. And he starts with the oldest and the wisest first and begins to reveal their sin before them. And they decide, oh, this game is not going so well. We didn't expect that he would know my sin. I have come as a religious Pharisee of the law, and I am self-righteous, and I never did what this woman did. I never committed adultery. You may not have committed adultery, but you have sinned. You see, I think part of what the teaching here is simply this. A lot of us, instead of falling on the grace of God and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we do the old I'm better than you story. I compare myself to others to make myself feel good, which then gives me a, a mindset that ultimately says, I deserve heaven because look, Jesus, I'm not as bad as them. And because I'm not as bad as them, you know, you should grade on a curve and the curve should always be I'm at the top of the curve because I have a bigger and more holy viewpoint of myself than I do of others who have done such despicable things in their life. We minimize grace. We maximize our own righteousness. Until somebody begins to point out our own sin and our own faults. This is what some have called religious moralism. It's an emphasis on proper moral behavior to the exclusion of genuine faith. And I think a lot of people today, and I think David Busick points this out in the book. You'll hear some illustrations of this. Where you'll have people who will, who will die tragically and, and people will say, yeah, they're going to be in heaven. It's going to be wonderful. It's so tragic that they have died and gone on to heaven. But they were such good people. Really? I mean, that's a, that's a, a nice way to comfort ourselves. But, but ultimately, we're not good. None of us are really good. None of us are good. And all of us, every single one of us, deserved death. We deserve stoning. We deserved separation from God forever and ever. That's what this woman deserved. I mean, she broke the law, and the law specifically says she was caught in the act. And the woman could have said, wait a second, they didn't bring the guy here. Well, why do I have to die and he doesn't? 
Well, you broke the law. He broke the law too, but, but why? I, I'm not as bad. She can begin to compare herself. I think it's easy for us to get into that comparison game. It's not how you take God's grace seriously, though. How do you take God's grace? You receive God's saving grace strictly from Jesus. Look what the story says. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. By the way, who is she standing in front of? Who do we know him to be? The son of God. Did he ever sin? Was he sinless? Was he the judge? Is he ultimately God himself who is holy? So he stand, she's standing now only before God. All of her accusers have walked away. Remember, this is a public event, so there are lots of people watching this. And then Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. What does she receive? She receives forgiveness, grace, mercy. She receives God's love and not his condemnation. It'd be pretty cool if the story stopped here. But the story doesn't stop here, does it? Because Jesus says something else that I think is really, really important for us to hear. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's our, this is our theological uh, definition of being saved by grace that Paul gives to us, really is applied to this woman in the story in the Gospel of John. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. You cannot do anything, nothing at all. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Get that through your head. It is by grace that you're brought to that place. It is by grace that you're saved. It's by grace that you are sustained. It's by grace that you're transformed. It is God's grace that does it all. You, the only thing you can do is put your faith in him. It's a gift. So that what? No one can say, oh, look how self-righteous you are. Look how wonderful you are. You've been in church every day for the last 50 years. You pay your tithes. You're a Nazarene. And you keep all the rules. That means nothing before the Lord. But how do you take God seriously? Not only does God give her freedom from condemnation, but he also gives her freedom to live a new life. He says, go now and leave your life 
of sin. You see, the journey of grace, the journey of God saving you, redeeming you, is a journey where you walk in a whole new way of living. You don't walk in sin anymore. You start walking in righteousness. You start walking in holiness. You start walking a new path. You live, you start, you start allowing the grace of God to change the way you think and the way you act. And he begins to start the process of what we call sanctification. When you get saved, God starts the work of making you like you're supposed to be, like Jesus. He begins that process as you journey with him. He begins to change you from the inside out. And he says to this woman in front of all these people, I don't condemn you, but guess what? Don't go sleeping around anymore. No more adultery. No more living a life of sin. And when you come to Christ... And when you receive his forgiveness, if you take this grace seriously, you must take it so seriously that you say, Lord, I pray that you'll forgive me and I pray that you will help me never to do it again. Help me to walk in righteousness, in truth, in a new way of living. Well, that's enough for today. I'm so glad that the Lord forgives us. Amen. Come, worship team, would you? And as we conclude this service, maybe today you're here and you would say, man, I need to get serious about God's grace. I need the grace of God to forgive me. I am not righteous. I deserve death, and I need him to help me to take my sin so seriously that I confess it to him, receive his grace, and then say, Lord, I am choosing to walk a new life, a new way of living. There's too many of us in the church today who call ourselves Christians who accommodate sin. We just... We just take it in. Like, yeah, but God loves me. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And we grade ourselves on a curve. If you know that you know that you know that you have activities and actions and conduct that you know are not of God, when you receive his grace, you are also acknowledging you're not going to do it anymore. And he gives you the power to help you to do that. You cannot remain the same. Why would Jesus say to that woman, leave your life of sin? He could have said, ah, it's okay. Go back to your life. It's okay. What happened is terrible. They shouldn't have dragged you in front of me anyways. And I, and I got out of the trap that they laid for me. But it's really no big deal. Go ahead. Go, go back to your life. I'm sorry this happened to you today. He takes it seriously enough to look at her in the eyes and say, Now go and don't do it any 
more. The life of grace is a life of truth, not of lies, not of darkness. And by the way, just after Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know what he also said? I am the light of the world. There is no darkness in me. So if you got to talk to the Lord today, why don't you journey down to the altar, confess your sins, put Jesus in his right place and receive his grace. Father, thanks so much for your word today. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.